Ukraine and Russia are two countries whose histories are intertwined. Ukraine's diverse cultures evolved in Russian imperial contexts and produced richly distinctive works of art and literature despite efforts to russify and restrain Ukrainian identity. The influence the two neighbors exerted on each other was bi-directional and some scholars even suggest that Russianness itself was defined in opposition to the Ukrainian other. In the Soviet period, Ukraine's social landscape was transformed by state-led industrialization projects, even as it stood at the vanguard of westernization and nationalist mobilization against Moscow's rule. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union, debates over the country's future have been bound up with competing views of the past. From the foundations of Kievan Rus in the 10th century to the legacies of the Second World War in the 20th century and beyond. Hi, my name is Momus Najmi and today I have for you the entangled history of Ukraine and Russia. So let's get to it. Early Slavs and the Kievan Rus In the first millennium in the Eastern European region, a large group of tribes used to reside throughout the dense woodlands. And in time they spread more and more. They were nomadic tribes and had no writing system. And so we do not have any written accounts of them. What we know about them comes from archaeological evidence, accounts from literate scholars from Roman Empire and Middle East, and via an epic history called the Primary Chronicles, written by a monk named Nestor in the 12th century. What these accounts tell us is that these tribes shared a similar Slavic language and polytheistic religion and by 7th century, they had split into three regions of Western, Southern and Eastern territories. The Eastern Slavs, which are the topic of our discussion here, stretched from the Nestor River to the Volga and the Baltic Sea. There is a somewhat mythical story that corresponds to it as well, about the three Slavic brothers, Lech, Czech and Rus. The Lech refers to the Poles, Czech to the Czechs and Rus to the Eastern Slavs. The myth follows the three founding brothers who went on a hunt once and decided to split to their own ways. Lech went north and eventually found Poland. Czech went east to the Rip Mountains and from Czech and Rus went to the east. During the 9th century, while the Norwegian and Danish Vikings were going westwards, Swedish Vikings went east. The Norse Vikings from the region that we now call Sweden rode their long ships deep into the rivers of Central and Eastern Europe, pushing up the Volga, the Neighbor, the Volkov, and the Neva rivers, among others. 
using rivers and lakes connected to the Volga, these Vikings traded as far as Constantinople, the heart of the Byzantine Empire, and Baghdad of the Abbasid Caliphate. They were called the Varangians by the Greeks and Eastern Slavs. These Varangians acquired the name of Rus, and the origins of this name is a bit mysterious. If we go by the story of three Slavic brothers, it would seem this would be in reference to Slavs and not the Norse. But the myth was written a long time after these events had already shaped the history of these lands. And by that time, and way before that time actually, the Vikings, the Varangians and the Slavs that resided in the Eastern Europe had intermingled and their history and their cultures and their language became one. The most common reference is to Rus, uh, meaning uh, men who row. Russia later took its name from Rus and so did Belarus. The Varangians essentially invaded the northern areas of the eastern Slavic region and formed the settlement of Stara Yaladoga and most significantly Novgorod. These Vikings sacked many Slavic and Finnic tribes and exacted tribute system on them. Tired of these Vikings, the Slavs, Finns and other Baltic tribes banded together to revolt against them and threw them out of their lands. But soon after, they themselves descended into constant internal battles. They eventually decided they needed a prince and a set of laws to govern them. And so they went back to these Viking Varangians and invited them to send a prince to establish governance over them. Rurik answered the call. He came along with his two brothers and made Novgorod his stronghold. Rurik's son Oleg, when he became the ruler, expanded the lands when he conquered a then outpost of Hazar Khanid here. Extending his rule, Oleg united local Slavic and Finnish tribes, defeated the Khazars and in 911 AD arranged trade agreements with Constantinople. And so the Kievan Rus was born, with the capital moved from Novgorod to Kiev. The Golden Age of Kievan Rus began with the rule of Vladimir the Great in 980 and continued through the rule of Yaroslav the Wise. During this time, the kingdom experienced prosperity, economic growth and peace. Vladimir the Great ruled the Kievan Rus from 980 to 1015 AD. He continued the expansion of the Kievan Rus, uniting many of the Slavic states under one rule. He also converted the Rus to Orthodox Christianity. This conversion strengthened his ties to Constantinople and the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church. He decided to change the religion of Kievan Rus from paganism to one of the most powerful religions 
this obviously had a strong political motivation. He sent emissaries to his neighboring territories and attained information from them. He rejected Islam because it prohibited eating of pork and drinking of alcohol. He rejected Judaism because he saw their loss of Jerusalem as their abandonment from God and found the Catholic hymns and tradition too gloomy. He finally settled on Orthodox Christianity which he found to be inspiring. The more obvious reason is that strengthening ties to Constantinople via Orthodox Christianity made more sense as the Byzantine Empire was more powerful and profitable for that region. He also married Byzantine Emperor's sister, further deepening the ties between the two empires. Byzantine missionaries also created alphabets for Slavic languages based on a modified Greek script. One of the reasons why the land of Rus uh, language is written a bit differently, a lot differently actually from the other Slavic brothers. Kiev by 11th century was referred to as the mother of Rus cities effectively becoming the capital of Kievan Rus. The rulers of that region were denoted as the Grand Prince of Kiev and in a way they had seniority over prince of other principalities within the Kievan Rus Empire. We will go more in detail about the more detailed history of Kievan Rus in a later episode. It's a very interesting and vast history and it's best to probably explore this empire even further in detail but a bit separately out of the context of the current climate. But the importance of Kiev can be witnessed here as being the birthplace of the collective Eastern Slavic Rus people. Since the more dominant player in this story still exists as Russia, and this grand city sits outside of its borders now, you can somewhat understand the pull to claim misplaced historical rights by redefining connections to it. Understand it, but perhaps not justify it. <laughs> the end of the Kievan Rus era came with the Mongol invasion of the region around 1223 AD. As a fratricidal dispute between the different principalities within Kievan Rus eroded the unity and strength. At the Battle of Kolka River, the Mongolian infamous Golden Horde overcame the forces of Kievan Rus and subsequently subjugated the region and its principality to its rule when they returned in 1237 AD. It is around this time that the Grand Duchy of Moscow began to rise, being the more northern region of Kievan Rus, providing a new focal point for the Rus people, becoming the heart of modern-day Russia. After the Mongolian era As the dominion of the Golden Horde waned away, the region which is today Ukraine 
was absorbed into the Grand Duchy of Lithuania and then later the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for a time. Now Cossacks, who are heavily linked with Kiev and Ukraine, eventually started resisting the rule of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. We will go in detail in a later episode about the Cossacks as they are very central to Ukrainian identity. But to give a bit of Cossacks, I'll let you know a brief um, intro about them, a, a brief information about the Cossacks. So the name Cossack is derived from the Turkic Kazakh, meaning free man, which obviously mean anyone who could not find his appropriate place in society and went into the steppes where he acknowledged no authority. Now the steppes were at the southernmost part of the Kievan Rus or the whole Rus region and steppes are actually a region of land, a flat region of flat land. That is where the Cossacks started living. They are originally referred to semi-independent and semi-nomadic Tatar groups. The Tatars of Crimea and so forth are another interesting Turkic group which we will again uh, have to discuss in a separate episode. Anyways, they were that semi-independent and semi-nomadic Tatar groups uh, which formed in the Dnieper River region. Later it was also applied to peasants who fled from serfdom in Poland, Lithuania and Muscovy to the Dnieper and Don regions. They were allowed a great degree of self-governance in exchange for military service. So the Cossacks rebelled in favor of joining Russia under the Grand Duchy of Moscow. From 1337 AD, Russia had been slowly forming from uh, regrouping disparate states. The process of reunification of sorts was completed in 1520s under Vasily III. In a way, a separate Russian state appealed to the Rus people of Ukraine and obviously exerted a pull on their legions because it gave them a sense of belonging through shared history. In 1654, the Cossacks signed the Treaty of Pereslav with the second Tsar of the Romanov dynasty, Alexis. This saw the Cossacks finally break from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and formally swearing their allegiance to the Russian Tsar. Crimea now, which had been a Khanate for some time during that era, part of the Ottoman Empire, had been briefly independent following a war between Russia and Ottoman Empire but then was annexed by Russia under the orders of Catherine the Great in 1783 AD. The Tartars of Crimea did not resist the move at the time and the annexation was then formally recognized by the Ottoman Empire. The emergence of a Ukrainian identity started formally cropping up to the surface in the 19th century centered around the region's Cossacks heritage. The history of the Ukrainian Cossacks has three distinct 
aspects. They struggle against the Tatars and the Turks in the steppe and on the Black Sea. Their participation in the struggle of the Ukrainian people against socio-economic and national religious oppression by the Polish magnates and their role in the building of an autonomous Ukrainian state. The important political role played by the Ukrainian Cossacks in the history of their nation distinguishes them from the Russian Cossacks. By this time, Russians considered Belarusians and Ukrainians as ethnically Russians, but referred to them as Little Russians, which shows they regarded themselves as having an upper hand on their two brothers and defined them as they pleased. Ukraine was going through a separatist movement because they saw themselves as having a definite, different identity. In 1804, it led to Russians banning teaching Ukrainian language in schools in Ukraine as an effort to eliminate the threat that a separatist movement might break up in the empire. Crimean War 1853-1856 From 1853-1856, the Crimean War took place. Be mindful of the many years in between that I've been living out in an effort to keep this brief. Obviously, there's a lot of parts within this episode that, were, that I will revisit more in detail. In the Crimean War, Russia fought a united force of the Ottoman Empire, France and United Kingdom. The war saw important battles like the battles of Alma and Balaklava. It also saw the experiences of Florence Nightingale in that war, which led to the professionalization of nursing. The Russian Empire lost the Crimean War and a treaty was signed on 30th of March 1856, the Treaty of Paris. This treaty forbade Russia from building naval bases in the Black Sea. In 1876, the 1804 ban of Ukrainian language was extended within Russia. The publication or importation of books, performances of plays, and the delivery of lectures in Ukrainian language was outlawed. This served as a further suppression of the Ukrainian identity. But also such accounts keep on giving credence to a distinct Ukrainian identity as the Russian felt it was there to be suppressed in the first place. The Formation of Soviet Union and Holodomor in 1917 AD, during the Russian Civil Revolution, Ukraine was for a brief moment an independent country, but was soon consumed by the Soviet Union. Ukraine and Russia were two of the founding signatories in 1922 AD to the document of USSR. Ukraine became known as the breadbasket of the Soviet Union because of its endless fertile lands. The grain and food it provided made it an invaluable part of the USSR. 
part that they needed to be in their firm control. So what happened next might seem shocking, but not so surprising if you understand the ill-advised need of the Soviets to crush Ukrainian identity and keep control of it. It would seem that Ukrainians signed on for their own enslavement by founding the USSR with Russia. Holodomor happened. Now, Holodomor was a state-sponsored famine, also known as Terror Famine, or the Great Famine was created in Soviet Ukraine from 1932 to 1933. It was nothing less than an act of genocide by Stalin's government. Crops were seized and sold to overseas markets to fund Stalin's plans. Animals including pets were removed and on top of that, Soviet soldiers ensured that whatever was left was kept away from the local population, resulting in the deliberate starvation of the people, which obviously resulted in deaths of up to 4 to 5 million Ukrainians. And those are just recorded estimates. This was a further attempt to squash the independent movement of Ukraine. After the deaths of the millions of Ukrainians, Russians from further away were moved into the lands of Ukrainians to help with the farming. But obviously that was a move to russify Ukraine, to take out that element that wanted independence. As always, I will discuss the horrors of Holodomor in a separate episode in detail. Second World War Moving on to the Second World War, Germany invaded Ukraine on the 22nd of June 1941, completing their takeover by November of the same year. Almost 4 million Ukrainians were evacuated eastwards into Russia. Now this is where a bit of murkiness comes in. The Nazis encouraged Ukrainian collaboration by appearing to back an independent Ukraine, but obviously secretly would renege on that promise straight away after they were in control. Stuck between a rock and a hard place, and also without the quick free flow and abundance of information that we get all around the world these days, you could see how some people within the country who were immensely wrong by the Soviets would be persuaded by the Nazi Germany proposal, the remnants of which might not be rooted in the ethos of Nazism but in the promise of independence. However, the majority of the Soviet Ukrainians fought against the Nazi Germany to push them and their Nazi ideology out of Soviet territory. However, between 1941 to 1944, around 1.5 million Jews living in Ukraine were killed by Nazi forces. In 1943, USSR was victorious against Nazi Germany in the important battle of Stalingrad. 
and then the counter-offensive from Soviets moved to Ukraine, retaking Kiev by November of that same year, 1943. The battle for the west of Ukraine on the other side of the Dnieper River was hard and bloody, but by October 1944, Nazi Germany was defeated out of Ukraine completely. Five to seven million Ukrainians died during the Second World War, and a famine in 1946 to 1947 claimed a million more lives. And the pre-war food production levels were not restored till the 1960s. Destalinization. On March the 3rd, 1953, Joseph Stalin died, and a period of destalinization began under the collective leadership of Khrushchev, Malenkov, Beria, and Molotov. The officials were finally allowed to criticize Stalin's policy of Russification. In a meeting in June 1953, Communist Party of Ukraine, CPU, in a central committee, openly criticized Stalin's Russification and its impact on the region. On 4th of June 1953, Oleksil Krirchenko became the first secretary of the CPU. He was the first ethnic Ukrainian to lead the CPU since the 1920s. As one of the policies of de-Stalinization, Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic transferred Crimea to Soviet Ukraine control even though only 22% of the Crimean population were ethnic Ukrainians. February 1954 marked the 300th anniversary of the Union of Russia and Ukraine, also known as the Perislav Council, the treaty which brought Ukraine under Russian rule, which was signed, of course, as we told before, by the Cossacks with the Tsar of the Romanov dynasty, Alexis. This event was celebrated with much accusto to prove the old brotherly love between Ukrainians and Russians. Khrushchev Thaw Khrushchev Thaw was a period from the mid-1950s to the mid-1960s when repression and censorship in the Soviet Union were relaxed and a million of political prisoners were released from the Gulag labor camps as a further extension of de-Stalinization policies and peaceful coexistence with other nations within the Soviet state. The term was coined after Ilya Ehrenberg's uh, 1954 novel, The Thaw. The policy of deliberate liberalization was characterized by four points. Amnesty for all those convicted of state crime during the war or the immediate post-war years. Amnesties for one-third of those convicted of state crime during Stalin's rule. The establishment of the first Ukrainian mission to the United Nations in 1958. And the steady increase of Ukrainians in the rank of the CPU and government of the Ukrainian SSR. Not only were the majority of the CPU Central Committee 
and Politburo members, ethnic Ukrainians, three quarters of the highest ranking party and state officials were ethnic Ukrainians too. The policy of partial Ukrainization also led to a cultural thaw within Ukraine. Era of Stagnation In October 1964, Khrushchev was deposed and succeeded by another collective leadership, this time led by Ukrainian-born Leonid Brezhnev. This period is denoted as the era of stagnation, both social and economic. The regime introduced the policy of Rastvet, Shplesnye and Slilanye, which means flowering, drawing together and merging or fusion. It was a policy to unite all different Soviet nationalities into one, a new one. In fact, it was a reintroduction of the Russification policy. Some Soviet officials were calling for the abolition of pseudo-sovereign Soviet republics and the establishment of one nationality. I guess it is a problem with all bigger unions when they go beyond their mission statement. This can be observed in Europe and rightly being challenged by some from within these days. Anyways, at the 24th Party Congress, instead of the concept of Soviet nation, Brezhnev talked about a new historical community of people, the Soviet people, and introduced the ideological tenet of developed socialism, which postponed communism. When he died in 1982, he was succeeded by Yuri Andropov who served for only 15 months before dying of kidney failure. That was the time of the Cold War as well. After him came Konstantin Chanenko, who ruled for less than a year and then was succeeded by Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985. Gorbachev's introduced policies of uh, perestroika and glasnost restructuring and openness, which failed to reach Ukraine as early as other Soviet republics. Chernobyl nuclear disaster and the fall of Soviet Union On 26th of April 1986, just over 36 years ago, Chernobyl nuclear disaster took place in Ukraine during a test procedure on reactor number 4, a power decrease made the reactor unstable. The core went into meltdown and the explosion destroyed the whole building. Until now, Chernobyl remains one of the only two nuclear reactor disasters rated at the highest level. Obviously, the disaster caused ongoing health issues around the area and the Chernobyl exclusion zone covered the surrounding two and a half thousand square kilometers. This disaster is noted as one of the main reasons for the collapse of the USSR as it brought huge doubts in the Soviet governance. Gorbachev said 
that it was a turning point that opened the possibility of much greater freedom of expression to the point that the system as we knew it could no longer continue the chernobyl disaster the russification policies the forced starvation of the ukrainian people and the social and economic stagnation led to several ukrainians to oppose soviet rule the policy of restructuring by gorbachev was never really introduced in practice 95% of the industry and agriculture in ukraine was still owned by the soviet state in 1990 lessons which people these days who call for nationalization in the west don't seem to learn this confusion of talk of reform but not delivering any concrete reform evolved into a palpable opposition of the soviet state itself the brutal machine had finally stopped working on all fronts the policy of glasnost openness proved to be the biggest tool for downfall it ended state censorship and it led the ukrainian diaspora to reconnect with their compatriots in ukraine the monopoly of russian orthodox church was also diminished revitalizing local religious practices several opposition pamphlet journals and newspapers were established and as we all know the best way to fight oppression and an overbearing authority is via open dissemination of information spreading the knowledge to the masses letting them know they are not alone then came the time of the august coup from 19 to 21st of august 1991 the three days there was a soviet coup d'etat attempt which failed it was an attempt by hardliners of the soviet union communist party to forcibly seize control of the country from gorbachev there were top military and civilian officials including then vice president gendy yanayev they opposed gorbachev's reform program that saw the soviets lose control over eastern european states and feared the ussr's new union treaty was on the verge of being signed this treaty was to decentralize much of the central soviet government's power and distribute it among its 15 republics kgb agents detained gorbachev at his holiday estate but failed to detain the recently elected president of a newly reconstituted Russia Boris Yeltsin Yeltsin and a civilian campaign of anti-communist protesters mainly in Moscow effectively resisted the coup collapsed within 2 days and Gorbachev returned to office while the plotters all lost their posts Yeltsin subsequently became the dominant leader and the eventual leader of the new Russia. This failure was a final nail in the Soviet coffin. The Communist Party of the Soviet Union collapsed and 4 months later the USSR was dissolved. Before the official collapse however, 
and in the events leading up to the dissolution of the Union, on 24th of August 1991, Soviet Ukraine declared independence, which renamed the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic to just Ukraine. Ukraine was a signatory in the official document disbanding the Soviet Union. Following this, in the same year, an election and referendum were held. The referendum asked the people, do you support the act of declaration of independence of Ukraine? Around 84 or over percentage of the population took part. So this was by all means a fully involved referendum, which would be around 32 million people. 92.3% of them voted in favor of independence, a very definitive vote for yes. In the following elections, six candidates, all backing the yes campaign, ran, an obvious consequence. Leonid Kravchuk was elected the first president of Ukraine with 62% of the votes. The secession of the second most powerful republic in the Soviet Union ended any realistic chance of the Soviet Union staying together even on a limited scale. A week after Kravchuk's victory, on 8th of December, he and his Russian and Belarusian counterparts signed the Belovesha Accords, which declared that the Soviet Union had effectively ceased to exist and forming the Commonwealth of Independent States as a replacement. They were joined by eight of the remaining 12 republics on 21st of December in signing the Alma-Ata Protocol, which reiterated that the Soviet Union had ceased to exist. Georgia was the only former republic that did not participate, while Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia refused to do so as according to their governments, the Baltic states were illegally incorporated into the USSR in 1940. The Soviet Union formally dissolved on 26th of December. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine became the third largest holder of nuclear weapons. However, even though Ukraine had the warheads and the ability to make more, the software that controlled them was in Russian hands still. So a deal was struck between Russia and the Western world for Ukraine to hand over most of its nuclear capacity to Russia in exchange for Russia to recognize Ukraine as an independent sovereign state. Budapest's memorandum in 1994 was held, which was on security assurances. This memorandum enforced Ukraine to destroy the remaining nuclear warheads. With hindsight, it was perhaps a mistake for Ukraine. Revolutions and Troubles at Young Ukraine The Orange Revolution took place in Ukraine in 2004, which was a mass protest against a claimed corrupt presidential election that took place. Protests took place in Kiev, along with general strikes across the whole country. The government in power before the Orange Revolution 
was a hybrid regime, which is a sort of competitive authoritarian regime. There was a growing appetite in the masses for a more democratic society. The whole country was ripe for a revolution. This part of Ukraine's recent history is filled with corruption, Russian collusion, presidential scandals like the cassette scandal where the then-president Leonid Kuchma in 2010 was found to have ordered kidnapping of a journalist who was later found dead, and the more bloodier protests which saw the death of at least a thousand civilians. Maybe we can cover that part in a separate episode if needed, but however we are right now focusing on the things connecting Ukraine and Russia. So we will move on to the consequences of the shifting political landscape in Russia which then affects the current situation. After the corrupt election of 2004 was annulled, Viktor Yushchenko was declared President of Ukraine, who replaced Viktor Yanukovych. On 13th of January 2010, the Kiev Appellate Court gave a decision which posthumously convicted Stalin, Ganovich, Molotov and Ukrainian leader Kosyer and Chubar, among others of committing genocide against the Ukrainian people during the Holodomor of the 1930s, the forced starvation of Ukrainian people. This was a clear effort from Ukraine to distance themselves from Russia and past crimes and solidify their Ukrainian identity. In 2014, there was a great deal of unrest in Ukraine, again. This was the Maiden Revolution or the Revolution of Dignity, also known as Euromaiden Revolution. Yanukovych denied signing an agreement with European Union to create a political association for free trade agreement with the EU. The public of Ukraine was not happy. 130 people and 18 police officers were killed in those protests and many injured. This forced early presidential elections. There was high Russian collusion suspected with Yanukovych. In the same year, a pro-Russian uprising happened in East Ukraine, in the Donbas region, and Russia annexed Crimea. This eventually brings us to the now current but if you're watching in the future, to the 2022 Russian invasion of Ukraine, disguised as a special operation by Russia. So let's go into it briefly to understand the events from 2014 onwards to 2022, to see how the mechanics of this took place. The long march to war. We won't discuss about the reasons for Russia doing this in detail, you know, may it be to do with wanting gas pipes to go through Ukraine without paying any levies or control of Black Sea or extracting oil from around Crimea, the fossil fuels which the Russian economy is heavily dependent on, or even the ridiculous notion of NATO encroachment making Russia nervous. A lot of these points are obvious to see and a lot of them are speculative opinions rather than facts as known by credible sources as of August 2022. So this brings us to the last part of this episode. Ukraine and Russia 2014 till now 2022. We will recap a bit 
of the start of 2014 to set the scene. In November 2013, edge of 2014, the pro-Russian president of Ukraine, as mentioned before, Viktor Yanukovych, decided not to sign a planned association agreement with European Union, and the protests broke out in Ukraine with the Euromaidan revolution. They turned very violent. In February 2014, some European foreign ministers mediated a compromise, which involved a unity government. And early elections within Ukraine, it was a sort of power-sharing government structure between Ukrainian political parties. Anyway, this power-sharing agreement collapsed on 22nd of February 2014, same year, same month, and funnily enough, Viktor Yanukovych disappeared. It was later found out that he had exiled to South Russia. Obviously, on March. 2014 immediately following the Euromaidan protest protest by pro-Russian anti-government separatist groups arose on the Donetsk and Luhansk oblast of Ukraine which is collectively known as the Donbas region Russia denied involvement however a significant amount of immigration took place from Russia to the Donbas region prior to that period Motives unclear, as they say. Perhaps consequences pretty obvious. It was not the first time that Russia had attempted such a thing in its history. Around the same time, unidentified military figures, widely thought to be Russian personnel, later confirmed, surrounded the airports in Crimea, a majority ethnically Russian peninsula in Ukraine. And the Crimean Autonomous Assembly was taken over by pro-Russian forces. A declaration of independence was issued by the Assembly, and a subsequent referendum on union with Russia was held. Important to note at this point that the Ukrainian military was very weak to repel this level of Russian involvement on their sovereignty. Since then, Russia has maintained its control over Crimea. And supported pro-Russian separatist forces, who also took control of parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions of eastern Ukraine, the Donbas region. In 2014, Ukraine launched a military counteroffensive against pro-Russian forces in April 2014, called the Anti-Terrorist Operation, the Donbas region. By late August 2014, this operation was able to vastly shrink the territory under the control of pro-Russian forces, and came close to regaining control of the Russia-Ukraine border. In response, Russia abandoned its hybrid approach and began a conventional invasion of the Donbas. As international attention remained focused on Crimea, Yatsenyuk. The then Prime Minister of Ukraine negotiated with the IMF to craft a bailout package that would address Ukraine's 35 billion dollars in unmet financial obligations. He also met with EU officials in Brussels, and on March 21, Yatsenyuk signed a portion of the Association Pact that had been rejected by Yanukovych. In November 
the IMF ultimately proposed an $18 billion loan package that was contingent on Ukraine's adoption of a range of austerity measures that included devaluation of the Hervinia, uh, the Ukrainian currency, and curbs on state subsidies that reduced the price of natural gas to consumers. Following reports of Ukrainian positions being shelled from the Russian side of the border between 22nd and 25th of August 2014, Russian artillery personnel and what Russia called a humanitarian convoy crossed the border. Russian official bodies denied presence of regular armed forces in Ukraine. It, however, did on many occasions confirm the presence of military specialists along with other euphemisms usually accompanied by an argument that Russia was forced to deploy them to defend the Russian-speaking population blah blah blah. As a result of the Russian invasion, DPR which is um, Donetsk People's Republic and LPR which is Luhansk People's Republic, insurgents regained much of the territory they had lost during the Ukrainian government's preceding military offensive. Skirmishes between separatist militias and government forces continued in the east, while the remainder of the country prepared for presidential elections on May 25th. Ukrainian billionaire Petro Poroshenko won in a landslide. On June 27th, amid strenuous uh, Russian objections, Poroshenko signed the long-delayed association agreement with the EU pledging closer ties with Europe. On July 14th, a Ukrainian transport plane was shot down at an altitude of more than 20,000 feet, 6,100 meters, a range far beyond the capabilities of the portable air defense systems that separatists had used previously. So either the Russians themselves shot it or the Russians provided the weapons for the separatists to shoot it down. Either way, Russian collusion was obvious. On July 16th, a Ukrainian fighter jet was shot down over the Donetsk region, about 12 miles from the Russian border. Ukrainian officials blamed both attacks on the Russian military, whom they alleged were taking an active role in the fighting. On July 17th, a Malaysia Airlines 777 carrying 298 people crashed in the Donetsk region. Both Ukrainian and pro-Russian forces were quick to deny responsibility for any role in the downing of the jet, which US intelligence analysts confirmed was brought down by a surface-to-air missile. Investigators and recovery workers found their efforts hampered by the pro-Russian forces who controlled the crash site, and days passed before the majority of the bodies could be collected. Ukraine, Russia, the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic signed a ceasefire agreement, the Minsk Protocol, on 5th of September 2014. Violations of the ceasefire on both sides became common amidst the solidifying of the line between insurgent and government-controlled territory during the ceasefire, warlords took control of swathes of land on the insurgent side, leading to further destabilization. 
the ceasefire collapsed in January 2015, with renewed heavy fighting across the conflict zone. However, another uh, ceasefire agreement was signed, um, another updated Minsk protocol in 2015. Fighting between Russian-supported separatists and Ukrainian government forces has continued in the Donbas region. For the last eight years, despite the negotiation of the Minsk agreements in 2014 and 2015, which called for a ceasefire, the withdrawal of all foreign armed groups and constitutional reform recognizing the spatial status of Donetsk and Luhansk as the situation in the east settled into a frozen conflict. Ukrainians grew impatient with the pace of political and economic reform. Although the Poroshenko administration has promised transparency and a renewed effort to stamp out endemic corruption, it could claim few real successes. Prime Minister Yatsenyuk narrowly survived a vote of no confidence in February 2016 and he resigned in April of that year. Poroshenko quickly moved to install his ally Vladimir Grossman as Prime Minister, but he was dogged by revelation about his use of offshore tax shelters during his tenure as President. A leak of documents from the Panamanian law firm Mossack Fonseca unveiled a money laundering and tax evasion operation of breathtaking scope, implicating dozens of public figures and politicians from around the globe. Poroshenko denied any wrongdoing and stated that he had fully complied with the law. The Orthodox churches of Ukraine had been under the jurisdiction of Moscow Patriarchate since the 7th century. But in December 2018, Poroshenko and Orthodox leaders announced a break with Moscow. Ecumenical Patriarch Bartholomew I formally granted the Ukrainian Orthodox Church independent status in January 2019. By this point, the Russian Orthodox Church had already severed ties with Constantinople and the Ecumenical Patriarchate in protest. In the presidential elections of March 2019, official corruption and the economy remained voters' key concerns in Ukraine. The candidacy of television personality and political novice Vladimir Zelensky shattered the established order. He had portrayed the president of Ukraine in a popular situation comedy, sitcom, and he leveraged his massive online following into a serious campaign against official corruption. Zelensky vowed that his uh, first goal as president would be to achieve a lasting peace in war-torn eastern Ukraine. Zelensky took office on May 20, 2019 and used his inauguration speech to announce the dissolution of parliament and the triggering of snap legislative elections. Those elections held on July the 21st delivered an absolute parliamentary majority to Zelensky's Servant of the People Party. This confirmation of Zelensky's mandate allowed him to promote a peace settlement 
that would see Ukrainian forces and Russian-backed insurgents withdraw from the so-called contact line in eastern Ukraine. Now, some $400 million in military aid for Ukraine had been approved by the US Congress, but then US President Donald Trump put a hold on the funds prior to a 25th of July 2019 phone call with Zelensky. During that call, Trump urged Zelensky to investigate the son of a political opponent, Democratic US presidential candidate Joe Biden, who had served on the board of one of Ukraine's largest natural gas companies, the son, not the father. Over a month later, the military aid was finally released, but by that point, congressional Democrats were investigating Trump's alleged attempt to pressure Ukraine. That investigation eventually served as the basis of an impeachment inquiry against Trump that was launched on September 4, 2019. Trump was obviously acquitted by the US Senate. However, till now, no official investigation has taken place to increasingly high evidence condition of Hunter Biden within Ukraine. On 1st of July 2021, the law was changed in Ukraine to allow the sale of Ukrainian farmlands for the first time in 20 years. The restrictions were put before to stop oligarch from buying up lands and influence, the kind of which Russia saw after the collapse of the Soviet Union. For Ukraine and its people, it opened up a huge opportunity for them to fill the gap in the global food supply chains due to the COVID pandemic years. At the beginning of 2022, Ukraine was the biggest exporter of sunflower oil in the world, the fourth largest shipper of corn and delivering grain to places like Morocco, Bangladesh and Indonesia. The yield were however lower and there was room for improvement and Middle East was looking into getting it from Ukraine as well which meant the former breadbasket of Soviet Union could soon become the breadbasket of most of the world. Their stocks were rising. In early November 2021, Russia began building up military forces along the borders of Ukraine for the second time in a year. Over 100,000 Russian military personnel and assets were deployed in Crimea and in the Voronezh, Kruzh, Korsk and Bryansk regions of Western Russia. Further Russian forces were deployed to Belarus for a series of exercises close to the Ukrainian border and Russian naval assets from the Baltic and Northern fleets deployed for exercises, military exercises, in the Black Sea. Tensions escalated following a US intelligence assessment in December 2021, which suggested that Russia could be planning an invasion of Ukraine in early 2022. A lot of experts dismissed this proposition. On 24th of February 2022, Russia launched military action in Ukraine, 
with forces crossing into the country from Belarus in the north, Russia in the east and Crimea in the south. Russia's actions came just days after President Putin officially recognized the self-declared independence of the Donetsk People's Republic and Luhansk People's Republic. The region of eastern Ukraine that are under the control of Russian-backed separatist forces and deployed peacekeeping forces to the region. What has happened since then is that Western allies announced new sanctions, including restrictions on Russian central bank and expelling key banks of the global payment systems. Uh, NATO forces has since provided military and humanitarian aid to Ukraine and keep doing so as the Ukrainian forces fight against the Russian invasion. Russia has so far found it very hard to penetrate Ukraine and Ukraine bravely keeps on fighting back. Vladimir Putin in Russia justified the operation as um, or rather the invasion as a military special operation to free Ukraine of uh, Nazism uh, which it suspects it happened uh, within Ukraine which are obviously unfounded claims. Protests happened within Russia uh, but they were soon shut down by the regime. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky decided to stand and fight which perhaps President Putin of Russia was not expecting. As of August 2022, no NATO country has officially entered into a war with Russia. What will happen in the future, we shall see. But I for one, maybe naively, but do hope for peace. These two countries have a long shared history together, as we have just seen. Even though they develop distinctly separate national identities from each other, a prolonged war is not good for the common people of either country. It is pitting Slavic brothers and sisters against each other in the most horrible way. We shall leave this entangled history till here for now and hope that we find it in better hands in the future. I will cover other subtopics arising from this history, uh, some of which I have mentioned throughout this episode before, and obviously others associated with it which might not be directly linked to this history but to the history of other Slavic people, giving it a bigger context. If you liked this episode, please consider subscribing to the podcast for similar episodes like this and more future content that will be coming your way. Also, if you would like to support the podcast, there is a link below that you can follow and support in any way that you would like, however much you would like to contribute. Until then, take care, be good. And thank you so much for listening.